continuing our series on less is more, less is more. That's a marketing term for those of you who have, who have, I've heard that before, it's marketing. And the idea is that sometimes you don't need a whole lot of information in order to communicate something to people. And uh, the same is true really in the scripture. You know, we've got 66 books, uh, but if we obeyed, you know, even a small percentage of it, uh, our lives would be so different than the way that they are today. So uh, I'm convinced our level of, of, of knowledge is really, really wide, but our level of obedience is really, really small. Uh, so sometimes we need to look at the, these small little books of the Bible. That's what we're doing, less is more. And um, so we've done uh, Second John. You know, there's all these Johns in the New Testament. So we've done Second John, and we've done Third John, and we took a detour and did Ruth, which is a little short book in the Old Testament. And today we're going to do another uh, another one of the books that, that's in the list. There, there's a reason why I'm not saying the name. You'll see why in a minute. And then we're going to do Philemon um, the week after next, after we hear from the Charbonneaux. Okay, uh, but today we're going to do um, what I call the book of Judas. Um, and I put something on our Facebook page as an experiment to see how, we, how people would react. And um, uh, you can look at the post. But uh, did you know that Judas wrote a book? I used to, you say, well, what do you mean Judas wrote a book? He did. Um, it's, we call it the book of Jude. Uh, but people on Facebook were really confused by this. They say, well, has Pastor Joe gone off the deep end? He's saying Judas wrote a book. This, the Judas who betrayed Jesus wrote a book in the Bible. That's nonsense, whatever, whatever. So at least it got people talking and thinking about these things, okay? But the, the name Jude that we have in the New Testament, the book of Jude, that name was a very common name back then. Uh, it's the name Judas, uh, you know, Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus, the same name as Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, it's the same name as Judah. You can just translate these things into the English language, and it's really you're transliterating them. So we intentionally distinguish Jude from Judas, but it's really the same name. So that's why I tease people and say, well, did you know that Judas wrote a book? So just so you realize, Mary and Joseph had other children. So Matthew chapter 1, she had no union with him, Joseph, until she gave birth to a son and they named him Jesus. Until. So Mary and Joseph had children the normal way, okay? And Mary wasn't some, you know, supernatural saint or something like that. She's just a normal lady, okay? So they had children. They had multiple children after Jesus. We even have some of their names. So Matthew 13 gives us their names. We have James, and we know James because he wrote a book in the Bible that we, we often read. It's a very practical book. Uh, we know there's another uh, brother of Jesus named Joseph. We don't know too much about him, but he's in this list in Matthew 13. We know another one. His name was Simon. You say, is that Simon Peter? No, it's not. But again, Simon, very common name back then. And we know this other fellow, Judas, who we call Jude to distinguish him from Judas, the Judas who betrayed Jesus. Are you confused yet? So we find these names, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, even Jesus, we find these names in archaeology all the time uh, in that part of the world. They're very common names. Even Jesus was a common name. Listen to my Christmas message from 
uh, from the most recent Christmas, and you'll see that, okay? Uh, so these names are very, very common, but we know that Jesus had these half-brothers. You can call them James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and at least uh, two sisters. They're not named, but Matthew 13 makes it clear Jesus has brothers, Jesus has sisters. I have heard people try to say, no, 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 they weren't brothers and sisters, they were cousins, and, you know, Mary was, was uh, you know, she was immaculately conceived, and so she couldn't have had any children, and da-da-da-da-da. This is really, really unconvincing. Their arguments are not convincing at all. A straight reading of the text will tell you this couple had children the normal way, just like everybody else did. And so Judas... He actually did write a book, and we have his book in the New Testament. We call it the book of Jude, and we're going to go through that uh, today um, in, in our message. Now, I need to just preface this for you. Um, this book is only 25 verses long, and I believe that in the days to come, it will, it will be a problem to teach and preach from this book publicly. Uh, I believe that a day will come where churches will be, will be in trouble, pastors will be in trouble if they preach and teach out of this book. This book is strong medicine, okay? So what you're about to look at is, wow, I mean, in this culture, it would be viewed as very, very offensive. Jude doesn't care, okay? <laughs> he, he wrote the book. The book has made its way into the New Testament. He was a half-brother of Jesus. Um, he could care less what we think 21 centuries down the road. But I just need to tell you that this, because of the way that the culture is, especially North American culture, this book will likely, and other parts of the New Testament, will likely be banned at some point in the future. Okay, so this is really, really strong medicine. It's like um, the way that he writes his book um, it, it's like he's a soapbox preacher standing in the street corner, you know, with a sign on his back and on his, on his chest. You know what I'm saying? And he's standing there and he's kind of shouting out to people, warning people, calling out to people. This is the style in which he writes this little book. Uh, but it is very, very strong stuff. Um, it starts out well enough uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Interesting, he doesn't say a brother of Jesus Christ. He says he's a brother of James, referring to his other brother James. But he says, I'm a servant of Jesus to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Note that we're going to look at that at the end, that little term, kept. May peace and love be yours in abundance. You say, oh, that's good. That doesn't sound bad at all. Why would that be offensive? Well, just keep reading. Dear friends, and he starts the meat of his, of his letter this way. Dear friends, and we don't know exactly who the friends are. We don't know if this is a church. We're not sure where this letter went. But dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share. So in other words, these were at least believers who he's trying to address. And he says, I really wanted to write to you about that, about the salvation we share. I, as if he's saying, I wanted to encourage you about this salvation we share. I, although I wanted to write you in that vein, in that fashion, I felt I had to change direction. 
I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. This is the first, first thing that we note about the book of Jude. So his concern is, I have had to take a detour in my intention of writing you this letter. And it is because you need to contend for the faith. And he gives the reason why. And he says, there are certain men whose condemnation has been written about long ago. And these men have secretly slipped in among you. And then he gives a very graphic description of these people who have come into somehow this context of believers. He says, you now need to be on red alert and you now need to contend for the faith. Because something has come in which is attacking and challenging the faith. Okay, so we fast forward to now. This warning that he starts this letter off with is so relevant for today. There, it, there has never, arguably, there has never been a more critical time in history where people who profess to believe the faith need to contend for the faith. That means to fight for it. It's not referring to, you know, picking up a gun or something, but it's saying there, there are certain things in life that you have to be prepared to contend for and certain things in life that you cannot compromise on. And he's saying you need to do that now. And even 21 centuries later, we need to do that now more than ever before because the faith is under tremendous, tremendous attack. And especially today because we have access to information like we have never had before. And the speed at which we can get information is unparalleled in history. We need to contend for the faith. He's saying you need to be in red alert mode because it is being attacked. And he says there are these men who have secretly slipped in amongst your culture and your context, and they are going to try and bring destruction to you and to the things that you believe. There are some hills, he's saying in today's language, there are some hills worth dying on. And this is a hill that you must, you must consider worth dying on. The faith is under attack. So he's going to start to describe these people and who they are and what their characteristics are like and what they're doing and, and all of that. But I thought it would be important for us first to say, well, what in the world is the faith? <laughs> because people today say, what does he mean when he talks about the faith? I mean, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the essentials? What are the important things when we talk about the faith that are hills that we should be prepared to die on, that we should contend for, that we should not compromise on? What is that? What is that faith? I mean, does it mean I have to, I have to say, well, yeah, I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. 
Is that what I have to contend for? Does it mean, well, you know, you've got to believe that, the, that it was created, the earth was created in six 24-hour days. Is that what he's referring to? Is he referring to the virgin birth? Is he referring to, what's he referring to when he says, contend for the faith? Now, there's all kinds of denominations and Christianity all around the world. I mean, I could, I could read a list and be here for an hour this group believes this this way, and this group believes that that way. And what is the faith? What is the hill that we should be prepared to die on? So I found a great list. This is basic, basic, essential Christian belief that if you don't have these things as part of the bedrock, the framework, the ground, the roots of your, of your, your beliefs, you're, 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 you're off on a tangent somewhere. These are the bare bone essentials of Christianity. It doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Pentecostal or Salvation Army or Presbyterian or whatever. These are the bare bones essentials of the Christian faith. This is what Jude has in his mind. He wouldn't articulate it necessarily this way, but this is what he has in his mind when he's saying this is what you must contend for. Number one, the deity of Christ. This means Jesus is God. This is a non-negotiable. And these men who he's going to talk about are actually challenging that central idea that Jesus Christ is God. You've got to count that as one of the hills that you'd be prepared to die on, so to speak. Jesus is God. Every... Every uh, uh, world religion, every cult will deny specifically the deity that Jesus Christ is God. They will deny it. So you talk to your Muslim friend, they will deny directly that Jesus Christ is God. They will not even call Jesus the Son of God. They will deny this flatly. For them, that is a hill to die on. No, Jesus Christ is not God, and he is not the Son of God according to their view. In Judaism, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, and they are very firm on that. In Hinduism, oh, Hinduism is a, just God's all over the place. In Buddhism, that, that's an atheistic religion. So you, you look at the cults, you look at Mormonism, which will say that Jesus is God, but everybody else is God also. That's a polytheistic religion. You look at Jehovah's Witnesses, they will deny directly that Jesus Christ is God. It is a central point of demarcation with all the, 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 the world religions that deny it, and virtually every one of them do, and all the cults deny it. You ask somebody, they believe this, they believe this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Yes or no? That is a hill that you should be prepared to die on. Original sin. Oh, so sin has entered the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says. It has infected all 
all of us. People will debate all they want. Well, you know, was it a real snake and was it this and was it that? Listen, the world is infected by sin. If you get that far and you say, yes, I agree, the world is infected by sin. I'm infected by it. Everybody is infected by it. We have been hit by sin. It has made its way into our lives. That is the doctrine of original sin. It's a non-negotiable. The canon of Scripture, that's the standard of Scripture that a person says, I believe this book is divinely inspired. You can argue about some of the details. You can argue about, well, how was, how was Jonah swallowed by a whale? I, I got a great video from someone in the church this week uh, talking about the David and Goliath narrative. And he had a totally different angle, which I thought was really interesting, on the David and Goliath angle. You know, how did he kill this, this giant with stones? And how was this and how was that? Okay, you can debate all those nuances all you want. But if you come to the conclusion, this book is divinely inspired. It's not of human origin. That's a non-negotiable because the message of salvation is contained in here. If it has no authority, if it's just the opinion of men, then it's just as good as anything else. There's no necessity to believe any of this stuff if this book is not divine in origin. That's C. Canon T. Trinity. Not only is Jesus God, but the Father is God, the Son is God, the nature of God is revealed in the Trinity. This is a word that we use to describe what we see in the scripture. God is one essence, but he's three persons, co-equal, distinct. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the nature of God. Every cult will deny this directly and fiercely. Trust me, I have argued with them, and they flatly deny it. Okay, or they say, well, the Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and I'm God, and you're God too. Uh, I remember when Mitt Romney ran for president. Do you remember that? We get all bent out of shape about, you know, who's president now. Remember when Mitt Romney was running for president? Mitt Romney is a Mormon. Okay, and I can remember when people were saying, oh, you know, this guy's a Mormon, he's in a cult. And everybody said, you cannot say that. Stop saying that. It's not a cult. Let me tell you, yes, it is. They believe in polytheism. They believe that you'll be a God, I'll be a God. And men, if you're, if you're a good Mormon, you get to be a God and inherit your own planet. Okay, they have all kinds of wacky, zany beliefs. And I will say it publicly, Mitt Romney or otherwise. It is an aberration to the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Our resurrection, Jesus Christ has been physically raised from the dead. It is a non-negotiable. I, incarnation, God became flesh in the person of Jesus. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a ghost. God became flesh in the person of Jesus and new creation. That means when a person comes to Christ, they can be made new. And there is a necessity of the new birth. A person must be born again. Jesus said it to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is a compulsion that people need to be saved. This is the idea of the new creation in E. Eschatology, don't be 
intimidated by the word. It means the end of time. It means Jesus will somehow come back and he will return again and he will complete the process of redemption of this entire world. You can argue about the details. You can argue about the rapture, which I joked about before. You can argue about the second coming timing and the millennium and the this and the that. And you can argue ad infinitum, ad nauseum about it. But do you believe Jesus is coming back? This is the, these are the essentials of the Christian faith. Whether you're Pentecostal, you're Baptist, you're Presbyterian, you're Salvation Army, you're whatever, these are the essentials of the Christian faith. And Jude is saying, watch out, because these things are now under attack. And today, my friends, in the 21st century, they're more under attack than ever before. I see so much weird stuff now, so much bizarre I mean, just garbage doctrine flying around all around the world. Just look on the internet and look at all of the nonsense that is all over the place. Nothing surprises me anymore. I was, I was looking into this this week and doing some research on some of the strange stuff. Uh, you know, people think it's, it's North America that's the authority on Christianity, as if North Americans have Christianity right. Uh, how arrogant is that, you know? In North America, we battle, as does much of the world, but we battle in particular a movement, a theological system that says what? You know, everybody's supposed to be healed all the time. Everybody's supposed to be wealthy all the time. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. If you're not healed, there's something wrong with you. If you're not rich, there's something wrong with you, blah, blah, blah. And we have all these systems and formulas and scriptures we can quote and prayers we can pray. And we can, if we fit into the right little mode there, then we'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will go well. And yes, you'll meet the girl of your dreams and you'll meet the boy of your dreams and you'll build a nice house and da, 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 da. Okay, we've lived through it <laughs> the last year and a half. We've lived through it, okay? And we've seen that God doesn't always heal everybody all the time. That's just not reality and not everybody is rich all the time. Your net worth doesn't determine your worth before God, okay? So that, that we battle with, but we're, we're no authority in North America on Christianity. We think we are, but we're not. You look around the world and you see all kinds of other crazy stuff. I've seen things in different nations in Africa that are scary. I've seen uh, articles inter that have made international news. One particular uh, uh, self-proclaimed prophet, um, I, I think it was either in South Africa or in Nigeria, I forget which nation, and the guy was spraying insecticide in people's faces. He was spraying them in the face. They called him the prophet of doom because the insecticide is called doom. And he would spray people in the face and claim that they would be healed by this stuff. Made international news. Uh, another case very recent of a pastor, I think I've mentioned this before, a pastor who staged a raising of the dead as part of his service. He staged it. So he, he brought the guy in in a casket. Okay, and you can see the video. The video is viral. It made international news. And you see the guy come in in a casket. You see him come in and you, you actually can see the guy breathing. You see his mouth opening and closing. Okay? It's really bad acting. But you can see it and you see the pastor waves his little hands over the guy and prays a prayer, blah, blah, blah. And you see the guy gets up out of the coffin <gasps> like this and everybody, everybody's... And now it's all a sham. He's under big investigation, big problems, all these problems. Uh, 
this kind of stuff, this is, this, is, this is a little bit of what Jude is referring to. You're going to deal with people who are going to slip into your midst somehow. And on, on the internet, wow, it's more prevalent than ever. You don't even have to go anywhere. You just go on the internet and look around at Christianity. And you're going to see all kinds of wacky, crazy stuff. Be careful, be careful, be careful. You're going to have to contend for the faith is what he's saying to these people. is no more relevant or even more relevant today. And then he gets into who these people are. You remember last week we talked about what, what John said. You know, there's, there's, there's good guys and bad guys. And he talked about a bad guy, a bad church leader named Diotrephes. The people who Jude talks about, even worse, like on steroids, is Diotrephes on steroids. Really, really bad stuff. What does he say about them? He says, verse 4, they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So what are they doing? They're saying, listen, you're a Christian. You can do anything you want. You can do anything you want. God will forgive you. It's okay. Go out and do whatever you, God will forgive you, God will forgive you. And we have a name for that, that type of heresy today, but this was, this was the, the idea. They were saying, you can do whatever you want. They, they take the grace of God and they twist it into a license for immorality, Jude says. What type of immorality, we're not sure. But as he develops his thoughts, it appears to be sexual immorality that he's talking about. Not only do they do this, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They seem to be rejecting somehow either the deity of Christ or his incarnation or something, but they're denying Jesus, our only sovereign Lord. Bad. I mean, he, he's, he's, he's talking about these people and he's saying their condemnation was written about long ago. Wow, that's really strong. And he's saying it was predicted that these people would come. That's very, very strong language. And then he gets into a series of warnings about these people and tries to describe the heart of these people. And he uses all kinds of warnings. Some of them are a bit bizarre. So he says, I, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that, uh, of a few things. And he gives them all these examples. Now, it would appear that these people are Hebrew people, that they're Jewish people, because all the examples that he gives were commonly known uh, in that day. And he even gives a couple that aren't even in the Bible. Okay, watch this. So he says, I want, you to, I want to remind you the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. Okay, we remember that. But later, destroyed those who did not believe. Referring to the people who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness and lost their lives. Aye, strong. Verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, some type of rebellion in the, in the realm of heaven, we, we assume. These he has kept in chains, in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Oh man, that's strong. Uh, it sounds a little bit like what Peter says in a letter that Peter wrote in 2 Peter. In fact, there are similarities between Jude and 2 Peter 
uh, that you can see several similarities. So he's talking about these people who were in Egypt who did not believe, these angels who did not keep, and he's starting to build a pattern here. And then he gets into another one, and this is like really offensive today, really controversial today. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, it's book of Genesis. That's you know, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, we have, uh, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Imagine reading that in today's culture, what the LGBTQ community would say about this. Imagine, gave themselves up, and it's not referring necessarily to them specifically. If you read the narrative and the story in the book of Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah, wow, you get all kinds of problems there. But anyway, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. What happened to them? They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Oh my goodness. Like strong, strong, really strong medicine, but he's building a pattern. He's saying, look, the people in Egypt who did not believe, the angels who did not keep, the people in Sodom who gave themselves up. And then he goes on to describe them even more. He says, in the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings like talking about angels, presumably, but even the archangel Michael, and this is where it gets really weird. He says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, this, what he's referring to is not even in the Bible, okay? It, some scholars think it comes from a book in the Catholic Bible called The Assumption of Moses, I think it is, but it's not there. When you read that book, it's not there but they think it may have been there in the ancient past, okay? So he, he's referring to something that clearly there was a story that these people b believed and thought was real, and it must be Hebrew people because that book would have been accessible by them. In any case, he brings it up, and he says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil for the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you interesting. I have heard people, uh, you know, in the way that they, that the way that they pray and they say, I rebuke you, Satan, and this kind of stuff. And you don't really find anybody doing that in the Bible. Not even Jesus says those exact words. In any case, uh, this, this statement here was the Lord rebuke you. And it's from this story that clearly these people believed it may have been in, in a book that was there back in the ancient world. We're not even sure. But the point is that he's describing these people who slander these angelic beings and they don't even know what they're talking about. These men speak abusively against what they don't even understand. Um, they're, they're, they do things by instinct. They're like animals. And these are the very things that destroy them. Do you see how, like this letter is on fire. I mean, this is strong, strong stuff, very strong medicine. Woe to them. They've taken on the way of Cain, Cain who committed the first murder in the Bible. They have rushed into prophet into Balim's error. We talked about him last week. That's the guy with the talking donkey. Remember, he was paid money to curse Israel. And that's Balaam's error. 
Uh, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. This is the guy who tried to organize a rebellion against Moses uh, in the wilderness. It describes them more. These men are blemishes at your love feasts. This was when they would come together and eat and probably celebrate communion. They're blemishes there. They, they, they eat with you without the slightest qualm. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. I mean, the language is on fire. They are clouds without rain. Yesterday when I was driving from Kingston uh, back here, there were these, I'm telling you, their clouds were black. Like it was really scary. There was, it was, they ended up giving rain. There was so much rain. It was blinding rain, you know, on the 401 there, driving between Kingston and Montreal. But I, I thought about my message and I looked at those black clouds. Imagine if those clouds never gave any rain. You know, they're just there, and they're so intimidating. This is the image that he has. Blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. Ay, ay, ay. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Whew. Strong. Very, very strong. And he's saying, watch out, because those people have slipped into your midst. Watch out. Be warned. This is the kind of person that is there, and they're going to try to bring you down. And then he mentions another bizarre reference from probably what's called the book of Enoch. Again, this is not in, in our Bible, but it, clearly it's a story that these people believed. And he says, Enoch, who's in the book of Genesis, he predicted this and he prophesied against these men. And he talks about how the Lord is going to come and going to judge them. It appears to be a direct quote from this piece of literature that clearly these people knew and understood and believed for whatever reason. But the point is, he quotes it and he says, I'm telling you, these people are real and these people are coming and these people are in your midst and you need to watch out and you need to be careful. And today, I mean, with the, in the 21st century, the information is anywhere. It's accessible anywhere. You need to really like, it's red alert time today uh, as if never before. And th But these kinds of people, all right, you say, man, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody like that. I mean, are there really people like that? You could say, well, Diotrephes, who we met last week, okay, we could see that. You know, we, we've, we've worked with people like that. You know, I have someone in my office who's like that. Are there, you know, Diotrephes, okay, I can accept. But this kind of, like, this is, it's, it almost appears to be so, like, bizarre and so intense and nightmarish. It's like a nightmarish description of these people. Okay, let me tell you a story of a person who I met that was like this. Uh, he wasn't completely like this, but he, he when I think of, of all that happened with this individual, um, he was very, very similar to what I, I read here in the book of Jude. So it's a number of years ago, um, and you know, I've been in the ministry for just over 18 years. You see a lot when you, when you, you, know, you mix with people for a long time. And I remember this one guy. And this guy came, came into the church. Uh, he was young. He, was, he had a magnetic personality. Um, he had, uh, you know, a slick testimony and presentation. He'd come out of another religion. And he was like this kind of rising star, rising young star in the church. 
And, you know, he started to get a lot of attention and just really fast, though, how it happened. And, wow, you know, everybody was talking about him. He's kind of like this rising young star, very slick, very, very well-packaged. And uh, it didn't take long when I started to hear from people about this individual. In particular, ladies started to come to me, and they started to tell me all these stories and things that were going on and the way that he was forming relationships with people. He had, he had successfully built a kind of a spider web, a very intricate spider web of all these different relationships where he very skillfully uh, manipulated people. He manipulated people for money. He manipulated people for, for sexual reasons. And he was a highly skilled, manipulative individual, highly skilled. It probably took two years to figure it all out, to put the pieces together, to look at the various joints of the spider web. I remember the pastor who I was working for at the time, we spent hours and hours and hours trying to get to the bottom of this and figure this guy out. He left a train wreck uh, of people, of hurt people. Uh, one lady individual, uh, specifically who I'm thinking about, who was also a very respected leader in the church at the time, was just, I mean, practically destroyed by this man. There was, there was talk of wedding plans between them and all of this, and then it all came crashing down like a, like a, like a deck of cards. I mean, it was a disaster. It I, literally two years, there must have been 15, 20 people involved. All this kind of manipulation and playing around with people like they were pieces on a chessboard that he was using for his own selfish gain. And very slickly done, highly intelligent. And it's like you're playing chess with this person to try and figure him out and to try not to hurt everybody else at the same time. We spent hours and hours and hours trying to get to the bottom of it. Finally, we did, and we had to challenge this, this individual, and there was a way to do that. And eventually, he just flat out left. And, uh, you know, he couldn't take the heat once he was figured out. I'll never forget the day when he showed up again, uh, you know, a year later, a year and a half later, there was a huge pastoral change that took place, and I, I was still there, and he came back in, and thinking that nobody would recognize him, and I did, and I recognized him, and I challenged him, I got right in his face, uh, because I wouldn't let anybody else be hurt by him, and we had to act very quickly to remove him because he was, he was very quickly going to try and do the same thing again. So it's this kind of very slick manipulation. It's almost like a, like a sociopathic way of using people. You say, do people like that really exist? Yes, they do. They're very few and far between. But Jude is saying, they're there, they're in your midst, and they've slipped in. And they're there on your, on your broadband signal. Do we still use the word broadband? They're there, they're, there, they're there on your phone. They're there on your leg. They're there. They're few and far between, but they have enough of an impact that you need to watch out for these people. And man, he goes into this. It's on fire. I mean, you keep reading it, and it's like, does it get any worse? I mean, what a nightmarish description of these wolves in sheep's clothing. 
And so this is the large part, the bulk of the message of Jude is to speak about these people and to warn the believers to watch out. But then he gets into some stuff that's a little bit better and a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more positive and a little more relatable, perhaps. And he says this in verse 20, but you dear friends... He's talking to his friends now. He's not talking about these people who have come in to hurt his friends. He's talking to his friends now. But you, dear friends, this is what I want you to do. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. So all that, all that, you know, that word doctrine that we looked at, you need to build yourselves up in that. Don't focus on these other people. You watch out for them, but you build yourselves up in the most holy faith. That's what happens when we meet together. That's what will happen when we meet together on Friday night. It's this kind of this building up and this encouraging of one another. Christianity is not an isolated experience. It is ineffective when it's done in isolation. You are not going to grow as a Christian if you isolate yourself and live like a hermit, okay? You have to be around other people and other believers. That's the idea of the church, and you begin to grow, and you build yourselves up, he says, in the most holy faith, and pray in the Holy Spirit, he says. There are different views as to what this may mean, but the point is the way that you pray somehow has a very deeply rooted connection to the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to bring you to eternal life. Then he continues with all these different kinds of little snippets. Uh, Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire. Uh, And then he continues verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling. Before he had said, keep yourselves in God's love. In verse 1, he had said, those who are kept by Jesus Christ. And here he he concludes the letter and he says it this way. He says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy uh, to the only God and Savior be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Sometimes we read that at gravesides. Okay, this is what they call a doxology, but the point is to him who is able to keep you from falling. Isn't that a great truth? Even if you live in a world where, wow, you got these crazy things coming in on the side that you have to watch out for, and, you know, there's warnings, and there's all this stuff. But listen, God is able to keep you from falling. You you don't have to be the lot that falls away. You don't have to be the lot that is like those who were in Egypt who ceased to believe or those in Sodom who gave themselves up or the angels that gave themselves over. You don't have to be like that because God has keeping power. You don't don't just keep yourselves. God also keeps you. And, and that, that should be very comforting and that should be very reassuring. You don't have to walk around in paranoia and fear. You just have to be sober. But you know, when you're, when you're at your lowest moment, 
That's when God is able to keep you. It's when you're in despair. It's when God is able to keep you. It's when you feel like you've lost everything. It's when God is able to keep you. Jesus is able to keep you. And he's able to present you before God without spot. Like we sang, without spot or without wrinkle. That's the power of God. That's the, that's the keeping power of God, the keeping power of Jesus. So I don't know. I mean, you, you, you probably really say, man, that is strong medicine. Am I supposed to be encouraged by this? I'm not sure. Well, it's a warning. And it is a very, very strong warning. But he, he tries to end the letter with this overall truth. You remember the sovereign power of God. It will keep you. It will keep your children you make sure you build yourselves up, but you remember God is the one who keeps. And God is the one who plays for keeps. He is able and he is real, as, is all, uh, as are all of these things that Jude has talked about. So thus endeth <laughs> the book that Judas wrote. Judas, Jesus' half-brother, 